Welcome to Joint Heirs in Granada Hills. This is our Bible study podcast in partnership with the Joint Heirs Fellowship Group at Grace Community Church. Well, we're returning back to our study in the Sermon on the Mount, so you can be turning to Matthew 5. We'll get there in a few minutes, but before we do, just want to review a little bit. Um, but we'll finish the second part of the Beatitudes tonight, and then in two weeks, Ben will pick up on uh, continuing through the Sermon on the Mount. But my title for tonight, you will not want to write this down, but the title for the sermon, or the, the lesson, is Poor Mourners, Humble and Hungry, Merciful, Pure-Hearted Peacemakers Who Have Been Persecuted. <laughs> That's the title. Sounds like a Puritan book. Poor Mourners... Humble and hungry, merciful, pure-hearted peacemakers who have been persecuted. And you obviously recognize why that's the title, because those are the, the Beatitudes. Those are the people who God and Christ says are blessed. The poor mourners, hungry and humble, merciful, pure-hearted peacemakers who have been persecuted. So just by, by way of introduction, if I were to give you each a blank piece of paper, hand it out, pass it out, and say, okay, I want you to draw conceptually or list. What does it look like? Draw a person who's blessed. Think about what would you picture as someone who we would say, that's a blessed person. And you would start to work on that. And some of you may have things like, he has a steady job. I know you can't draw a steady job. If you had to illustrate illustrate a steady job, well-paying job, Nice house, um, kind of has just has the appearance that everything's kind of together. Maybe a nice car, a decent car. It doesn't have to be nice, not a Ferrari, but you know something nice. Attractive spouse, a nice-looking spouse. Um, well-behaved children, probably. Maybe physically good health, not really any health problems. That would be probably maybe not some of you, maybe not even many of you would list those things, but. Generally, if you go outside, even in the church, those would be some of the things I think that if you list out what's a person who's blessed look like, might look like that. If we were to look at what God's portrait of a blessed person is, what does it look like? Poor in spirit. Someone who's mourning. Someone who's gentle or humble or meek. Someone who's hungry or thirsty for righteousness, desperate for righteousness. And you'd fill it out a little bit more and you'd say, and the picture looks like someone who's merciful. So in relationship to someone else, it's someone who has mercy. Someone who is pure in heart. Someone who's blessed is someone who's pure in heart. Someone who's a peacemaker. And then here's the kicker. This is not on our list of blessedness. Someone who's persecuted. So look at how the, the portrait of a blessed person in God's kingdom and in God's eyes differs from what we typically think of as a blessed person. And even, like we talked about last time, what we would maybe refer to ourselves in some sense that we're blessed. And I want to be careful not to kind of just go totally to the extreme and say that a well-paying job is not a blessing from the Lord. It is a blessing from the Lord in, in many senses. It's common grace. Both non-believers and believers can have a well-paying job. That's in some sense it's blessing. God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, or the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous, and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And so, in some sense, there's blessings that God gives us. But in the Beatitudes, Christ is very clear about who is blessed. Who is blessed? So God's kingdom is the opposite of the worldly kingdom or of Satan's kingdom. And God's wisdom is totally contrary to the world's wisdom. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, confronts the, the erroneous ideas of blessing and, and of religion, and he sets the record straight, painting a true portrait of the person who is blessed by God. So just a couple comments by way of introduction and kind of review. So we, we made some comments just generally about the Beatitudes. You know, we come to the Beatitudes and there's some real wrong ways of looking at the Beatitudes, that these are criteria for 
that someone should look to be doing, that if they're not a Christian, that if they do these things, then they can become a Christian. It's not that. It's not works that you do to become a Christian. But just some general comments. Number one, every beatitude is for every Christian. So you don't have some Christians who are supposed to be pure in heart, and then some that are supposed to be humble, and some that are supposed to be uh, mourners over their sin, and some that are supposed to be poor in spirit. Every beatitude is for every Christian. So there's no difference. Number two, they're not natural. Remember we said these aren't natural, just temperament, personality traits. That, well, he's just naturally a meek person, or he's naturally a peacemaker. He's not a fighter, he's a lover. That's not what Christ is talking about. He's not talking about just temperament. He's talking about a spirit-infused, complete change, transformation in your life that comes about from being in the kingdom, in God's kingdom, from being a believer. Number three, these things that Jesus lists out, these mark the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. So everyone belongs to one category. Either you're in God's kingdom, you're saved, you're a believer, or you're not, and you're in the world, and you're of the devil, and, and your father is the devil, and Satan is, is the ruler of your kingdom. So the Beatitudes mark a clear delineation between who's in the kingdom and who's not. The Beatitudes look at the character before acts. So just as, as all in, in Christ's teachings and in the teachings of the Bible, the character and what we are produces what we do. And so the Beatitudes look at who a Christian is and then what a Christian does. We, we are what we are, therefore we do what we do. So because of God's work inside of us, that comes out in our works. And so one other word just to review uh, in, in, in terms of this word blessed. Maybe two other things by way of review. Remember we talked about the word blessed. Does anyone remember Generally, what we gave as a definition for blessed. Happy. 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 That's part of it. Yeah, that's part of it. It goes further than that, though. Does anyone else remember what we... You said spiritually prosperous. Yeah, spiritually prosperous is, I think, a good definition. Spiritually prosperous, independent of one's circumstances. It's not a fleeting, comes-and-goes feeling. Sometimes our... Our world's definition of happiness is kind of it comes and goes. This is not that kind of a, a happiness or a joy. This blessing is not fleeting. It's uh, bestowed by God. And it's a state that, yeah, that's bestowed by God, that God gives you a state of blessing. Take my watch off here so we can see time. So that's blessing. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be in God's favor? I think we would all say yes, right? And that's not, a, that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to say, yes, I want to be blessed. It's a great thing that we want to be blessed by the Lord, don't we? We just want to have the right understanding of what that means. And the, and the Beatitudes do that. It's very different than how we think of being blessed. Jesus shows us that in God's kingdom, it's not what we may think. All the blessings of God's kingdom are spiritual. He doesn't list any material, physical blessings here. They're all spiritual. Those are the eternal things. That's what separates the blessing of common grace, which is physical, temporal, versus eternal blessing, which is only for those who are, are uh, believers. Okay, so real quick, let's dive in. Uh, who wants to read Matthew 5? Uh, Starting in, we wanted to pick it up a little before. Starting in actually chapter 423 through mm -hmm. Matthew 512. Who wants to read that? Set it in our mind. Anyone, anyone? Kevin, go ahead. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall, see, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thanks, Kevin. Great. So we studied the first four last week, or two weeks ago, last Bible study, and we're going to pick up on the fifth one and finish off tonight. But just looking back at those first four, so if you think about the poor mourners, hum, humble and hungry, we started with poor in spirit, and I'll just quickly hit on these. Poor in spirit, does anyone remember what that refers to? How would you summarize that? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That it's the opposite of pride, prideful, mm-hmm. spiritually bankrupt. bankrupt. Yeah, yeah, good. We talked about being spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing to bring to God. There's nothing that we bring to the table that we can say, "Look, God, here's my, here's my spiritual riches." No, we have nothing but spiritual rags, right? So poor in spirit is almost a beggarly. Uh, we have nothing, and theirs when we are spiritually in poverty, bankrupt, then God gives us the kingdom. Look at the the irony there. We come as spiritually bankrupt and poor, poverty, poverty stricken, and God says theirs is the kingdom. Again, just upside down. Everything is upside down. So the character of the one who is in God's kingdom is, is understanding that they're desperately poor. They bring no spiritual good to God. Those who mourn, the mourners, do you remember what that refers to? So remember, poor in spirit is recognizing that I have no good thing to bring to the Lord in my kind of spiritual bank account. Those who mourn. Sorry over their sin. Yeah, good. That's mourning over sin. So you recognize it and it causes a a grief, a sorrow, a mourning over that sin. You recognize spiritually you have nothing. You have sin, and that causes a grief and a sorrow. And those who mourn will be comforted. How? How will they be comforted? Well, God reconciles to himself those who mourn over their sin. He comforts us by forgiving our sins. And 2 Corinthians 1 calls God the God of all what? Comfort. God of all comfort. He comforts us. Comforts us by when we mourn he he comforts us by saving us and then in our spiritual walk he comforts us when we grieve and when we have sorrow and trouble and, and trials and adversity and in salvation he comforts us through sending a son and in our daily walk he comforts us by sending other believers so yeah. god is the god of all comfort but when we are mourning over our sin he comforts us good number 3 the gentle or the meek or the lowly depending on your translation, they will inherit the, the earth. And the, the gentle or the, the humble or the lowly have a posture of humility towards God. It's a posture that you can't demand anything from God. We, we come humbly and he gives grace to those who are humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So they will inherit the earth. God will bestow eternal blessing on those who approach him. Humbly, And then lastly, last week or two weeks ago, we talked about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we talked about how this is, can be taken both as a hungering and thirsting for an alien righteousness that then is imputed to us through Christ. So we, we hunger for righteousness and we're satisfied with Christ's righteousness when we're believers. But there's also a, a, a 
sanctifying righteousness that we're hungering and thirsting for daily. After we're saved, we are still hungering and thirsting for that sanctification, that righteousness that is a fruit of the Spirit. And so those who are blessed, those who are believers, are hungering and thirsting. They recognize they have no spiritual currency in their account. They're bankrupt. They mourn over that. They come to God humbly, and they're hungering and thirsting for the righteousness that they don't have. And what does it say they will be? They will be satisfied. They're satisfied by the bread of life when... When we eat of it, we no longer hunger, and we're satisfied by the living water. When we drink of it, we're no longer thirsty. So God in Christ satisfies our hunger for, and thirst for righteousness. So moving into the ones we're going to study tonight. The next one is, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. As we work through these, what I want to do is I first want to look at what it is not, so by way of the opposite, and then we'll look at what it is. So first of all, what would it be, what is mercy not? Or what is someone who is merciful, what are they not? Give me some, some thoughts on that. Blessed are the merciful. What's the opposite? Vengeful. Vengeful? Yeah, yeah good. They're not looking to, they can walk away, they can be selfless. You know, looking to take revenge, to have mm-hmm. their way, mm-hmm. even though you might have wronged them. Yeah. They're forgiving. Exacting the law. Exacting the law. Unforgiving. Unforgiving, good. And does Romans 12, we read Romans 12, mm-hmm. does some of that repaying evil for evil, right. not repaying evil for good, or, or don't repay evil for evil, repaying yeah. evil with good. Some of these things are principles that uh, are very clearly taught in here in our Beatitudes, but yeah, that's all right. Vengeful, exacting the law, not forgiving, that's what an unmerciful person is. Someone who is not looking to forgive. Now, merciful is not, it's not overlooking sin all the time and only. Okay, but Someone who's merciful is not overlooking or minimizing or kind of winking at sin, because That's not how God is. God is not merciful in the sense that he totally just discounts sin. And so merciful is is not that, and merciful is not vengeful, unforgiving. It's not piling on rules and weighing people down. That's not merciful. That's what the Pharisees did, right? And Jesus, you know, so many of these things that he's saying... Uh, are characteristic of believers, we see that they're the opposite of what was characteristic of the Pharisees, don't we? And we see him just go right at their heart and at their hypocrisy later on in Matthew, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, but also in Matthew 25, where he just is just casting woe and cursing towards the Pharisees. Woe is you, uh, you hypocrites. He repeats it, I think, seven or eight times. Hypocrites. And then he says why. We'll look at that in a minute. But So merciful is not piling on rules. He said the Pharisees lay heavy burdens on the backs of people and don't lift a finger to help them. That is not merciful. I would say that's the opposite of merciful. So exacting the law, laying burdens on people. So what, one more thing, I would say it's not quick to condemn. Think of the the description of God in Exodus 34 when Moses said, show me your glory and God says, I will cause my glory to pass in front of you, pass by you. And he declared, you remember what he declared? He declared his character. He said, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And then finally he gets to, and I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. But look at all that comes before that, slow to anger compassionate, gracious. That is merciful. So the opposite, in some sense, would be quick to condemn, quick to anger. And as we think about it that way, I think some of uh, the Holy Spirit's conviction comes to us when we think about it that way, because I don't know about you, but I've seen in myself that quick to condemn, quick to anger, quick to judge, 
unmerciful spirit that sometimes can characterize even, even believers, especially when we're in a church where we're taught what it should look like. This is how it's supposed to look like. And we can quickly turn to hypocrites to say, it doesn't look like that in your life. Uh, it doesn't look like that in your life. And we can be quick to judge and quick to condemn. But Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. So what is mercy then? How would you define it? Grace to those who don't deserve it. Good. Grace to those who don't deserve it. I guess that's grace. Grace is undeserved. Yeah. Good. Well, we've heard that, right? The difference between grace and mercy. Grace is giving something what someone what they don't deserve, and mercy is not giving someone what they do deserve. So I think there's a there's a, a good, helpful kind of pithy way to think about it. It's understanding that the same mercy in which you received from a holy God, although deserving none, being a sinner is the same mercy that God cares to give all who are willing to come to him. And so when we think about mercy, sometimes we can look past very easily that we received it Mm -hmm. and that it is the same mercy that God wants to give all to those who will repent of their sins and come to saving faith in Christ. And we are quick to judge, and yeah. and God is patient, yeah. and yeah. right because that's what He says. It, it's His desire that none shall perish. Yeah, right. Yeah, we really define mercy really when we look at God, and that's mm-hmm. the the point with all of these is we see it in in action in Jesus Christ. We see it in character in God the Father, and we say that's what mercy is. We look at God and we say everything about God. Is mercy. I, I read it uh, this way, and I thought this was helpful. Grace, just looking at the comparison of grace and mercy, grace is especially associated with men in their sins. Mercy is especially associated with men in their misery. So grace is associated with men in their sins. Mercy is associated with men in their misery. What does he mean by that? Grace looks at sin as a whole, and mercy looks at the consequence of sin. And so when we have a merciful spirit, a merciful heart, part of that is realizing, yes, God has mercy on us. Part of it is realizing that anyone who is sinning, is they're sinning because they are sinners. And so we, we can, in a sense, we look past that person, and we, we look past what they're doing a lot of times to us, and we can say, I pity that person because they are in sin. Whether they're a believer or a non-believer, if they're a non-believer, they're a slave to that sin, and they can't help but sin. If they're a believer, they're in the flesh and they're still in sin, but we can look past the, the, the person and we can say, I have pity on them. I believe that's what, what Jesus did to people who were repentant. And even those, you think about what he said when he was being crucified, Father, forgive them. Think of Stephen when he was being martyred, and it was the same, uh, the same sentiment, forgive them. That's a merciful spirit when you, you can understand the cause of sin and the consequence of sin. And you're, you're a lot slower to judge, aren't you, when you think about it that way? You're a lot slower to, to condemn Brian, can we, mm-hmm. and, and our Father, when we say that prayer, he, we say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who mm-hmm. trespass against us. So we must forgive others, right? Because um, in Matthew 6 it says, For you, well, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. So forgiveness is part of that mercy, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah there's. there's the number of different places we could go to, to reinforce that exact thought, that forgiveness is, is rooted in the forgiveness and the mercy we've been given. Our mercy towards others, our forgiveness, our compassion is rooted in the very forgiveness and mercy that we've been shown. And, and we remember the parable, right, of that servant who was forgiven lifetimes worth of income, and then he went out and choked the person who owed him just a tiny bit. 
And that's us when we don't show mercy to others. When we don't show forgiveness, how can we, as believers of all people, know what forgiveness is more than anyone in the world would, and then turn around and be unmerciful or unforgiving? So it really is true that the, the, the root of our mercy, the cause of it is an understanding of what we've been given in Christ. And ultimately, that's right. That, that ultimate mercy, the ultimate example of mercy is Christ dying on the cross for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. He saw us in our helpless state. He, he knew we were prisoners of sin and he had pity on us. And he took action to alleviate the cause of that, what, what um, caused pity. Brian? Yes? Um, just, as you're speaking, it reminds me and gives a new uh, kind of a, a picture, a new uh, variation to our Lord's uh, ministry in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, where he's teaching for the first time in his hometown. He opens up the prophet Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he talks about release to the captives, sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Yeah. And then he sits down in the teaching posture and tells them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And the response is, they were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words mm. which he was saying. Yeah. There's an example there of, his, of our Savior's pity toward us who are so poor. Prisoners, captives, blind, oppressed, yeah. and shows mercy to us. And the response is the graciousness of his words to us. Yeah, that's exactly right. We looked at that last time, that exact passage in Isaiah, because there's so many parallels here. Poor, prisoners, blind, oppressed. That's a lot of overlap with the Beatitudes. And yeah, the, the depth of Christ being the fulfillment of the Beatitudes. He is the one who is poor in spirit. He is the one in a different way. He became poor. Though he was rich, he became poor for us. He embodied pity towards merciful, peacemaker, pure in heart. So Christ is a fulfillment, but you see his grace and mercy. Yeah, good. Um, you know, Shelly, as you were talking just on the, the topic of forgiveness, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Again, just reinforcing that, that if you're a believer, how dare you receive the Lord's forgiveness and mercy and then not show it to others? Yeah. How dare we do that? Forgive others just as you've been forgiven in Christ. So the merciful are those who understand that. The more we understand the mercy we've been given, the more we will be apt to give it out. And so the question comes, how do I cultivate a merciful heart. How do I cultivate really any of these? Pure heart. Peacemaking heart. And the answer to all of them is look to Christ. Look to Christ. The more we gaze on Christ, the more we will be like him in these things. Why? Because we understand he is the fountain of all of these towards us. So there's, there's such, um, such a spotlight when Christ is talking about all these things. There's a spotlight being drawn on himself that we would look to him and we would learn these things. Think about, you know, think about this in terms of mercy. You know, when, you, when you understand the root of someone's sin towards you, it changes how you approach them. Mm -hmm. We were sitting in, um, in church a number of months ago during the COVID time, and we were in the gym, and um, there was a, a, a man who was, was making a, a scene in the gym during the, the live stream. He was laughing out loud and just being very just disrespectful. And then he started, and he was behind us, and he, he got up and started walking down the aisle and just being just very, very disruptive and disrespectful. One of the, he wasn't a security guy, but one of the, the elders, or, or maybe it wasn't even an elder, just someone who was in leadership in the church came and was pretty rough with that man and kind of wrestled him out. What he didn't realize is that person had special needs. This was a special needs person who their caregiver, I think, had stepped away or something, and they were making a scene, and they were walking around, and he didn't realize the reason for that. 
And so he was rough with him. And I think the analogy here is that when, if, you, if he had understood that, no, this isn't some you know, hooligan who's trying to rush the stage or something. This is someone who's, who doesn't have you know, the same faculties that we do. You, you would approach it way differently, wouldn't you? You would approach it way differently. You'd say, okay, I, I have mercy on him. I see why he's doing what he's doing. And it's not out of an intention to you know, disrupt or to, to, to rush. I think we can have the same... When we're merciful, we'll have that same uh, viewpoint towards others, just even in the worst sin. We see why they're doing what they're doing. We understand. We know. If they're a non-believer, it's because they're a slave to this. And yeah, they're acting out horrific things maybe, but we can have mercy because we know what the cause is. So... It doesn't mean, like I said, we overlook sin. It doesn't mean we wink at sin and say, it's okay, I'm going to have mercy. I'm not going to call your sin, sin, because you know, there's justification for it. No, we have a, a balance like God does. But I think we all could use a lot more mercy in our perspective. I know for sure I can. Critical spirit, condemning spirit can really creep in very easily. So, blessed are the merciful. I'm going to have to pick up the pace here, but these are... There's so much in each one of these, right? There's so much richness. Blessed are the merciful. One quick note, giving mercy is not a condition of receiving mercy. Mm -hmm. So God does not give mercy because you are merciful. This is not works-based mercy receiving, even though it sounds like that here. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. No, the ones who receive mercy, the ones that give mercy are the ones who understand what mercy is. And that's because... They've been given it by God. So just really quickly, uh, you don't need to turn there. Matthew 18, 32, 33 really illustrates this. It's that, um, that parable I mentioned of the slave who had been forgiven just a lifetime's worth of debt and then did not forgive someone else who owed him just a tiny amount. And this is what, the, what Jesus' comment is on the story. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? And here's the key. In the same way that I had mercy on you. So the mercy that that slave is supposed to have to the other slave is rooted in the fact that he received mercy. And that's key here because we don't want to misinterpret this and say that if you show mercy, if you feed people at the food bank, if you go out and go on humanitarian crusade, crusades, then God will show you mercy. That's not it. That's works-based. That's, that's a, you know, can be a, a Catholic perspective that you do certain things and then you'll be shown mercy. No, you're, you're shown mercy on the, on the basis of what Christ has done for you on the cross. And when you re, uh, understand that, then you turn and show that mercy to others. So blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And that is that mercy that we talked about that God shows us. I'm going to move on here just to, for the sake of time to, to hit all that we need to. Number, uh, well, number two tonight, number six overall. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So we'll start with the opposite. What do you think the opposite of pure in heart is? And let me give you a little hint. Think about this in the context of Jesus is going to be addressing Pharisees and also those who have been influenced by the Pharisees. So it doesn't say necessarily he's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to disciples. And we read it. He's talking to crowds when he saw the crowds. So he's addressing crowds, and those many of them would have been influenced by the Pharisees. So with that in mind, what's the opposite of pure in heart? Selfishness? Self-centeredness. Okay, selfish, self-centered. Mm -hmm. Closed-minded. Closed-minded. No, so the Pharisees only thought one way, so they don't care apart. Okay, closed-minded. Yeah, might need a different perspective. Okay, what else? Opposite of pure of heart, pure in heart. Just as far as words may be defiled in heart, not pure, Good. but being defiled is what comes out of the heart mm -hmm. and defiles us. Good, good. Yeah, so defiled in heart. What about this? Pure in actions. Mm. 
talking about it that way, pure in actions only and not pure in heart. That would be a definition of Pharisees, wouldn't it? Pure in actions, the outside of the cup is clean, but not pure in heart. I think that's part of what he's getting at here, is that blessed are the pure in heart, it's the heart that God looks at. He, he doesn't look at the actions only, he knows the heart. So if you're praising him with your lips, but your heart is far from him, you won't be blessed, you're not a Christian, and Christ will, will later, when he talks to the Pharisees, will level judgment against that. So blessed are the pure in heart. The opposite could be impure of heart or pure in appearance only. Seems that the emphasis is on the heart as opposed to the outward appearance. The, the Pharisees would have had purity in appearance. That wouldn't have been a problem for them. They were pure in appearance. He'll take that on when he says, don't be like, the, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll get there. Don't be like the Pharisees who stand up in the synagogue and pray long prayers. They blow a trumpet when they give. All these things that are just focused on the outward appearance, don't be like that, he says. But here he's starting it off by saying, blessed are the pure in heart. You're not doing things to be noticed. There's a purity there, but it's not pure of heart, and it's really not true purity. Right? If you think about a cup that is clean on the outside, and you go to drink it, and then on the inside you see mold and mildew floating in water, there's nothing more impure than that. On the outside, it looks great. But it's, it's totally corrupt. Pure heart is what David cried out for in Psalm 51. I'm going to ask someone to turn there and read Psalm 51, verse 7 to 10. If someone wants to, to read that. Remember, while we're turning there, that this is a psalm of confession after David sinned with Bathsheba. A wicked, wicked series of sins. Not just one, not just two, but sin after sin after sin after sin at the grossest level. And David here is crying out to God in repentance. Psalm 51. Does someone want to read verse 7 to 10? Yeah, go ahead. Purify me with this up, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Good. Yeah, he's crying out for a pure or a clean heart. Hmm. When you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy... When you mourn over your sin, truly you're grieved by your sin. When you're, you're humble, you come to God humble, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. You want a pure heart. You want to be pure in heart. You want your, your motivations to be pure. You want your, your desires to be pure. You want your intentions, everything, all your goals, you want them to be pure. That's what you, you crave as a believer. Yes. Not just my actions, Lord, but my heart. And that's what he wants. He doesn't just want clean hands. He wants clean hands and a pure heart. So blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. In a sense, that's fulfilled here. Just like all the Beatitudes, and there's one sense that it's fulfilled in the here and now, seeing God. When we're pure of heart, God reveals himself to us. When we are here on this earth, we're comforted by him. He, he answers our prayers for purity in, in our heart. But ultimately, in the, in the end, we will see God. We will see him face to face. We will be like him. That's the promise of Scripture to us as believers. We will be in His presence as we know. And what a day that will be when we do see Him. We will truly be pure in heart in that day. Now we're battling the flesh, we're battling temptation. We desire a pure heart, but then we will be pure and we will see Him face to face. What a what a thing to look forward to. And, and um, I think it's uh, I think it's First John where it says, He who 
has that hope, purifies himself. Mm. So when you're looking forward to being face-to-face with God, it affects how we live here. We purify ourselves here in our actions. Good. Well, we struggle at this, don't we? We struggle with this. We tend to want to put on a show for others. When we're at church, we want to show that everything's good and we're fine. And so sometimes our pure heart is, is contaminated by putting on just outward appearance. But we want to pursue a purity of heart. All right. Moving on. Number seven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So let's start with the opposite. What is opposite of peacemaker? This one's a little easier, I think. Troublemaker. Troublemaker, yeah. <laughs> a strife maker. There's no, no such word, but what else? Causing division. Good, causing division. Not bringing together, but taking apart. What else? Opposite of peacemaker. Think of someone who's who's easily angered, content, contemptuous, or contemptible. Contem- well, yes. Contentious. What's the word? What is the right contemptuous. word? Contemptuous. Contemptuous. I thought it was contemptuous right. and contentious. 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 There we go. Hey, that was a that was a good one. Yeah, someone who's not a peacemaker is easily angered. I'm, anyone who comes to me, they're going to get anger. They're going to get not peace from me. They're going to get strife. So blessed are the peacemakers. By the way, is it warm in here? Yes. Is it even warm? Okay. Can you hit the air conditioner? <laughs> no, I'm going to be warm, but I don't know. I'm going to be the only one to disagree with that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Charles. We'll get you a blanket. You Thank blanket. you. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, the peacemakers. So um, prone to strife, prone to division. Good. Uh, what peacemakers is not here is not peace at all cost. Okay, we need to be able to distinguish what's a, a righteous peace and what is a compromising peace. So you can have peacemakers that you think there's peace with them, but there's really not, or they'll compromise in order to have peace with someone. So it's not a peace at all cost. It's not a compromising peace. doesn't mean also never any conflicts. Okay, so husbands and wives, peace doesn't mean never any conflicts. But peace means that we deal with the conflicts in a godly way, and we come out the other end stronger than we started. So peace doesn't mean peace at all costs. It doesn't mean never any conflicts. In a marriage, sometimes, like like all relationships, there has to be conflict. There has to be a, a bringing of of differing opinions and I know conflict can have a charged meaning to it but conflict of opinions conflict of interest conflict of preference isn't necessarily in and of itself a bad thing but how we deal with those things can be bad and that's what gets us into trouble doesn't it causes us to think causes us you know there's a willingness with being a peacemaker when when you are uh, introduced to a new concept or something maybe that you haven't learned before or something, you know, and, and a correct interpretation. The peacemaker, it's always welcoming, mm-hmm. right? Okay, it's not offensive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I, there's more of a thankfulness behind mm-hmm. it because you helped, you know, thank you for helping me learn and there's, a, there's a, an eager reception for mm-hmm. that, you know, somebody who really yeah. wants it and desires it. Yeah. Yeah, whether or not there's peace deals or depends so much on how we approach the conflict. I love that, Charles. Are we seeking to understand or are we being offended? I know for men in marriage, the first thing is I'm offended by that. And we have to get past that to say, I want to understand what you're saying. Correct. I want to be at peace here. I don't want to just jump to offense. Ladies, maybe if I can give you a word too, be careful how you, how you put things to your husbands because we are prone to being offended and, and uh, to being 
feeling like we're being accused. But husbands, we got to approach it with, no, I want to. I want to have peace here. I don't want to have conflict. I want to understand what you're saying. I want to deal with it in a godly way. That that will be a blessing to both in a relationship, not just marriage, in any relationship. But the key is how we deal with it. When we bring in bitterness, it's not going to be dealt with the right way. When we bring in bad, ungodly communication, it's not going to be dealt with in the right way. There won't be peace. There will be division. So we really need to watch how we go about our conflict. We need to watch how we go about our daily lives to be peacemakers. So that's what it's not. What is it? And Well, peace is always in the context of relationships, isn't it? There's always, you can only have peace between living, relational people. So if you're a peacemaker, you will have peace in your relationships. Have you seen the people who conflict and bad relationships seem to follow them like the, the, um, the stink like on oh, yeah. pig pen and Snoopy? Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Everywhere he went, there was like this cloud of just like filth. And that's how it is with some people, with conflict and just bad, broken, everywhere they go. Conflict, broken relationship. Here, conflict, broken. It just follows them. You don't want to be that person. We need to learn how to be at peace. And it takes a lot. It takes humility. It takes a selflessness. It takes a, a work at it sometimes. It takes working at understanding, communication, of being godly, of forgiving. But Christ says those will be the ones who are blessed. Eternally blessed, but also blessed in this life. Yeah. You know, we have a children's song, we have peace like a river in our soul, right? Uh, when you think about a river, uh, it flows, sometimes it's smooth, sometimes it's rough, it can be tumultuous, but no matter what it is, if you look at the analogy of peace like a river, no matter what's coming, what you're going through, what's happening, what you have to deal with, you have that peace. Mm-hmm. You know, inside of you, mm-hmm. that no matter what comes, whatever you have to deal with, whether it's um, conflict, what is in a relationship, but even with children, that peace is there because of Christ. Mm-hmm. And you want to, as you said, understand what are you saying to me, mm-hmm. and how do I respond? And always, like, if I want to say something to Charles and I don't really know how to say it, I need to go to the Word. I go to the mm-hmm. Word and look, or I listen for a sermon because maybe I don't have the words to say it in a mm-hmm. way that is will not be offensive you yeah. know yeah. and always try to remember that the people in our lives we even though we know them don't be so familiar with them that you don't take the extra time to be mindful of your words yeah all the time that's good yeah, yeah. yeah so much of peace depends on communication yeah. of words good can I ask an important question? Right yeah. Now? If we are being peacemakers, does that mean that we will always be at peace with people? What do you guys think? Ben's asking if we're, if, if we're... I said if we, are being, if we are being peacemakers, does that mean that we will always be at peace with people? No. 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 What's the response to that? How, why is that a no? Anyone want to take that on? Because Isabel, we haven't heard from you tonight. <laughs> it's just always. The word always. I mean, really... <laughs> Oh, what? never say never. Always, always, always not have peace. Right. Good. There's okay. No such thing. I mean, at some point we all, uh, yeah. Even though we're peacemakers, we'll find. Con- I mean, well, there will be some kind of conflict, whether yeah. we created it or not. It's just part of living in a fallen world. You know? Yeah. We read it tonight, Romans twelve. Did anyone catch it? We read it. Here it is. 1218, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Mm-hmm. This is what you're getting at, right? Yeah, yeah I just not, I think it's important that we don't think that if I have conflict in my life, then maybe that means I'm not being a peacemaker. Yeah. I mean, that could be true, Yeah. but the Word says as far as it depends upon us. We do the best that we can without compromising, as you yeah. said. Um, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee peace in our life with people. Absolutely, yeah. It's a really good and really important point. That, and even if you, like we read in Romans 12 there, um, at the end, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then earlier, um, 
Never take your own revenge below it. Leave room for the wrath of God. So there's going to be evil that comes at us. And even later in the Beatitudes, we'll look at it in a few minutes here, persecution. So there will be conflict. And it will be in spite of your best efforts to make peace. There will be conflict. Um, it's not always going to depend on us whether we're at peace with someone. If someone doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't want to have peace with us and they really go out of their way to not have peace, then, yeah, we can't make peace in that. There won't be peace. But as far as it's up to you, if possible, be at peace with all men. So look at your relationships and look at the conflicts. And first of all, examine yourself. Have I done everything I can in a, in a, with a godly, pure conscience? Have I done everything I can without compromising to be at peace with that person? Sometimes it just won't happen. Sometimes it takes time. Uh, Albert, you had a question. So, so I'm thinking on what Ben said. Um, because, um, could, this, could this verse mean, uh, mean that um, the first thing is that we have peace with God? Yeah. I think it's impossible to make everyone happy and then you know, conflicts are natural for us. Yeah. And uh, if we maintain the peace with God, then I think we will be able to maintain the peace with other men. It's better for differences. Mm-hmm. Could it be that? There is, yeah, there is. We have to be a little careful because we can't make peace with God. Right? God has made peace with us. But I think what's helpful, I think, is to think about it this way. Peace, think about it, a triangle. Okay, there's God at the top, us on one side, and then others on the other. Or you say God, me, and others. And there's many different kind of paths of peace here or, or kind of interactions of peace. So between God and us, yes, that's the first kind of line of peace. And so God has made peace with us. I, I wrote it down, Romans 5.1. I'm just going to reference it quickly. Um, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Yeah, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he makes peace with us first. Right? That's him not counting our sins against us, forgiving us, uh, and, and making peace with us. So we are at peace with God. That's that horizontal here. There's a peace within ourselves. Think of Philippians 4. The peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's given by Christ, but that's a peace inside of us. So that's kind of just down at the bottom. There's a peace with other people. That's the peacemaking kind of horizontally that we can have control over. And then there's us affecting other people's peace with God because we ultimately want to be peacemakers between them and God as well. We want to, to, um, we want to bring the message of peace. I'm thinking of 2 Corinthians 5. Um, I, I beg of you, be reconciled to God. So we come and we say, Sinner, I have a message of peace between you and your maker. I beg of you, be reconciled to God. How do you do that? We give the message of peace that's, that's this way, right? Between others and God. We can be peacemakers that way as well. We can even help others find peace that we have in our heart, right? If we point them towards the peace that comes from Christ, they will then have a peace that passes all understanding as they... You know, direct their prayers and, and give thanksgiving and supplication to God as well. So there's many aspects of that. God makes peace with us first. We can make peace with others. We want others to make peace with God or for them to be reconciled to God. So I think it's all contained here. Blessed are the peacemakers. For you should be called sons of God. Why is that? Who's the ultimate peacemaker? God and Christ. There's no other kind of more premier example of peacemaking. He had a whole race of people that were in rebellion against him, a war, all-out war against God that rages every single day and seven, well, not seven billion souls, but let's say six billion souls on this earth every single day. And God has made peace with some. Not all, but with some. And it's through the very most precious price that he could pay it's his own son the the price that's the highest was given to those who deserved it the least 
and, and we find that in Romans 8, where he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? God has, has demonstrated to us the length that he is willing to go to to make peace with us. It's the very most precious price that he can pay. He spared no expense, and he delivered his own son over for us all. He made peace. And so when we are peacemakers, we're sons of the ultimate peacemaker. We reflect that characteristic that our Father exemplifies in Christ. So blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be, they shall be called sons of God. How do we cultivate that heart of peacemaking? We've talked about it. The more you look at Christ, we went through Philippians last, didn't we? And if you look at Philippians 2 and just meditate on what Paul is saying, that unity or harmony or peace within relationships comes from humility. Christ is the ultimate example of humility. We want to cultivate peace in our lives. We need to cultivate humility. We need to look at Christ and his example, and we need to follow that. That's one of the biggest areas that we can focus on for cultivating a heart of peacemaking. James 1, uh, James 4 actually says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts between you? Strife, what's the, the source of it? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your soul? That wage war within you? It's your, ple- your desires. Give up the desires, and many times there will be peace. Give up what you want and consider others better than yourself, and a lot of times that will create harmony. So, cultivating peace. Okay, we're going to move to the last two. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom. This is not hard to understand. It's hard to swallow. It's easy to understand in a sense. God says... Christ says the ones who endure persecution for the sake of righteousness, they are blessed. And theirs is the kingdom. Just like those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. Those who persevere through the persecution of this world for the sake of righteousness, they are blessed. Brother, you can probably testify to this. Albert was telling me how you were kicked out of Bhutan, arrested, for sharing the gospel. I would love to hear more of that story, and, and maybe if you continue to come to the, the study, we can hear you talk a little bit about that. But there will be persecution. There will be, we don't, that's not in our picture of someone who's blessed, is it? When we, when we list out the person who's blessed, it's not someone who's persecuted a lot of times. People who endure that, though God, uh, Jesus says, are blessed. They are blessed. Theirs is the kingdom. There's a purifying effect of persecution. We don't seek that out. We don't want that. But we recognize that there's a purifying effect of persecution in our own hearts and in, at large in the church. There's a purity that comes from a church that's persecuted. We saw that in, the, in Russia. When we were in Russia, there's a purity of those who had gone through the persecution in their faith. Christ says those are blessed. Again, this is just totally flipped on its head, right? The worldly wisdom and what what is so deeply ingrained in us. We, we so much, I don't know about you, but I so much push against. I don't want the persecution. I don't want the the ridicule, I don't want the physical pain. We don't, we don't really have to think about that day-to-day here. We don't. It's just not a reality for us. But if we lived in a lot of parts of the world, it would be. We'd have to consider, are, are we willing to, for the sake of righteousness, undergo whatever persecution there is, physical, mental, from friends, from former friends, from neighbors, for anyone who has experienced that persecution, there is a peace that happens that carries you through it. There's really no way to understand it unless that peace which surpasses all understanding because it's the only thing that carries you through it when you're persecuted at that level. You don't understand it. You don't retaliate against it. 
You don't revile against it. You understand what it is when it's happening. You know that it's coming from the root of sin. And you understand that God is in control of all things. And that peace is with you, even according to the outcomes, whatever that persecution leads to. Mm. Yeah. You experience great peace, and that is divine. There's no other explanation for it. Yeah, well, that's good, Charles. Yeah, God comforts them. Mm -hmm. Those who are persecuted, there's promises of comfort. We see that all throughout Scripture. We've seen it throughout church history, and individuals can bear witness to that. Yeah, good. And then lastly, similar following on, but this one, interestingly, he is addressing, and he says, blessed are you. It's a little different formula there. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the, the, the history of the church. It's persecution. And we live in a, a strange blip in church history where there hasn't been persecution in America. It's just this strange anomaly over thousands of years that we happen to live in this kind of bubble that has been persecution-free for the most part. But I think when we look on the horizon, we see it coming, right? We see it coming. And it's coming really fast. And so we have to determine now, are we going to stand firm? Are we going to believe Jesus' words when he says, rejoice, when he says you're blessed? Are we going to really, truly grab onto those promises and believe him, even though we might think, and say, this is really, really hard. And again, some of you have, have felt that. You've gone through that. Are we going to cling to the promises of our Lord when he says, you are blessed? Remember, we have to shift our understanding of what blessing is first. If we think, I can't possibly be blessed because I'm enduring such ridicule, then I'd say, shift your understanding of blessing because that's not Jesus's definition. I can't possibly be blessed because I'm, I'm being hated by these people. No? Shift, shift your eyes over to what Jesus says is blessing. Well, I don't think I can do this on my own. So yeah. it's praying to the Lord for His Spirit to help me to, to go through the kind of persecution. Yeah. It's not going to be that I do it on my own. That's exactly right. Absolutely right. Good point, Jeffrey. It, you shall, because He's with you. That's the only way anyone can stand in the face of persecution. And, and, and all of what we've read, the same can be said. I can't be poor in spirit on my own. No matter how hard someone tries, it has to be a work of God. It has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. Every one of these, the, the, the poor, the mourners, the humble, the hungry, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, it's all, he gives the grace for us to, to do that, to be that. And so may he bless us, truly bless us, as we seek to, to do this more and more in our lives. As believers, he's given us the Holy Spirit, and so we're working out our salvation in fear and trembling, but may he bless us to to really live that portrait of the blessed man or the blessed woman by his strength. Would you say like in our trials, when we have our trials, and you know, when we are weak is when we are strong, right? And in our trials, we learn how to, by his grace and mercy, slowly let things of the world, let it go. And things that, like when I was in my 20s, I was like, oh, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be this attorney, I'm going to be doing this. And, you know, those things, they fade away. They don't no longer matter. You know, and you try, you try to continue to grow and seek more of the things of God. As he says, keep your eyes looking above. Keep your eyes on the things of above. So you start less and less of the things of the world. And this is the sanctification that he brings and allows in our trials. Because there are things that happen in your life to try to... You never think that you can get through it. You're like, oh my gosh, 
what am I going to do? But because of his grace and his mercy, when we get through it, as he told Paul, my grace is sufficient. Mm -hmm. And when you're done, strengthen your brother. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we rely on him. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, let's close in prayer, and then we can um, we'll break off into small groups. I'll explain that in a minute. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we, we look at the Sermon on the Mount. Lord Jesus, we look at the wisdom that you've displayed, and it's, it's not a surprise because you are the creator, and you are the, the, your wisdom incarnate, and, and God, all wisdom comes from you. And so we're not surprised, but we are amazed, and we just stand humbled, Lord, that, that you would call us to this and that you would give us the grace to, to obey you in these things. Lord, help us. Help us to be poor in spirit. Help us to mourn. Help us to, to come to you humbly. Help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness each day to be these merciful, pure in heart peacemakers. Lord, and if there's persecution that we have to endure, give us the endurance. Give us the perseverance. Give us the strength and the courage and give us the eyes that look to you and wait on you. Lord, we need that, and we will need that. We know that you provide all these things. Help us just to grow in our faith in you and to trust you more. We pray that as we do this, that you would be honored and glorified, that it wouldn't be for our glory, but that Christ would be magnified, that, Father, you would be praised and worshipped among people who don't praise and worship you now and that you will receive glory. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.